Hello, and welcome to another episode of NBRI, New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retail Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Dr. Venki Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair Professor. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Dr. Donna Hoffman. Donna is the Louis Rosenfeld Distinguished Scholar and Professor of Marketing at the George Washington School of Business in Washington, D.C., She's an internationally recognized academic and sought-after sought industry speaker in the areas of social media, online consumer behavior, and digital marketing trends. She's worked with major companies, including Procter & Gamble, Intel, Microsoft, FedEx, and Walmart. She's a member of Procter & Gamble's Digital Advisory Board. She co-founded and co-directed the first academic center for e-commerce in the U.S., I guess in the 1990s, and she's been awarded many of the field's most prestigious research honors, including the Robert B. Clark Educator of the Year Award from the DMEF, the Shedd Foundation Journal of Marketing Award, the long-term contributions to discipline of marketing, and the William O'Dell Journal of Marketing Research Award for long-term research impact. Uh, she's also named Distinguished Graduate Alumnus of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, thank you, Donna, for taking your valuable time to join me in this conversation. How have you been amid this uh, challenging times? Thank you, Venki. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, it's, uh, it's been tough. You know, we had to switch over from uh, regular teaching in the spring semester, like many, many of us, and then we had to go virtual right, right around, you know, before spring break. And that was pretty intense, and we all made it through. And now... I think we're just trying to get used to the new normal. I just wanted to start out by asking, how would you describe yourself in maybe five words or less? Uh, <laughs> I know it's, it is a bit, a bit challenging too, but I'm sure you could take a uh, shot at that. In five words or less. I'm, uh, right. I, I think I'm, uh, I feel like I'm uh, uh, at a crossroads uh, and exploring what might come next. I think. I think this is a time of reflection for a lot of people and uh, pretty, pretty stressful period. And I'm just trying to uh, take, some take the opportunity, uh, since everybody's working from home, to start to figure out, uh, you know, how, what's going to be my place in this, in this new uh, environment. But more generally, I was thinking if somebody was to uh, ask to describe Donna in five words, what were... The five words be. I was thinking of, you know, you would come up with your own five words. I don't know. I think that's, that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> what are your five words for me? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to mess up. <laughs> but uh, that's a good call, Venki. Yeah, call. I know. It's better. That's why this question is from you to yourself. How would you se look upon yourself as that? So, but but if you want to think about it and talk about it later, that's fine. Okay. But okay. maybe we could get started from your research journey and I, uh, after your PhD in, the, uh, in psychometrics, uh, how did you, how have you moved along in your research and just give us a brief glimpse of your research journey. I, uh, well, I, th I think my career has had, um, my research career has had like two, two pieces. I had my pre-tenure uh, piece where I was a psychometrician by training and I worked on a lot of methodological uh, research uh, as you pointed out some of some of it was more uh, award-winning and you know it was pretty prominent but it was very um, methodological and quantitative and then um, 
in the 90s when the internet uh, first started to appear, when NSF got out of the backbone business, I was really captivated by that. And because I was tenured at that point, I decided uh, that I thought I really thought it was going to change the world, which was a, a unique perspective in 93, you know, in 1993. And I switched my research since I was also, I'm a psychometrician, which is behavioral psych, uh, statistician and psychologist. I started to become really interested in the online consumer behavior issues. Like how would people behave in this new environment? And since then, it's been a 25 plus year amazing journey uh, right. studying first online consumer behavior with the web, then looking at social media. And now my work is uh, focused on uh, new emerging technologies like Internet of Things and artificial intelligence and how consumers are going to react in those environments. It's great. So that's a good snapshot over a period of time. And I still remember the first conference on Internet. We remember way back in MIT and uh, oh, yeah. when we were together and so, yeah. uh, so and we've ago. come a long way <laughs> yes. but yeah and right. I think you, you know you moved from uh, online consumer behavior to social media which you, you did a lot of work on and now from what I understand you're looking more at uh, IOT or internet of things and also AI so talk to me a little bit about uh, what you're currently doing what are your current research interests and what are some of the issues that you are planning to continue? Well, so what, one of the things I think is kind of interesting, which relates to the kind of research trajectory and the evolution of my thinking is when the internet burst on the scene, I was really excited by that. And I, I felt an excitement I don't, I don't know that I'd ever felt in my professional life. And I kind of rode that wave, you know, from the research perspective. And, you know, as you note, I've worked with a lot of companies and I've done fair amount of consulting. And, um, but I think it sort of reached a steady stage and it wasn't really as interesting anymore. It was more on social media marketing and things that were, you know, a lot of people are experts on that. And it's, uh, we're kind of in this sort of rolling along the wave, right? And the wave isn't very choppy. But then when um, this idea came out, when, when, this, when it came out this idea that you could put intelligence into objects, and uh, so some people call that the Internet of Things, but we could think of it more that these are inter Internet connected objects that have intelligence. And so they're powered by, by AI, but they're connected to the Internet. I suddenly felt again this amazing um, sort of passion re reawaken for, oh, my God, it's going to be incredible and it's going to change the world. Right. And I think this is something many people have begun to realize pretty quickly. Uh, I'm certainly not alone in this, but I think there's going to be a rapid uh, transition as we ponder what it means to be in a world where the internet has sort of burst through the walls or sort of the digital and virtual environment and is now in the physical world living with us. So it's in objects, it's in chairs and desks and Coke cans. And, you know, it's not just in living in our computers. And, um, you know, one example of that is uh, Alexa, you know, Amazon Echo, I have to be careful, I have to whisper, she's sitting right here. Uh, but so, so, so my research now uh, focuses on things like, um, what will consumers experiences be in their interactions with these smart objects? 
And one of, I think, the fundamental things that we've been looking at is this idea that because we have these repeated interactions, like for example, let's take these digital voice assistants, we're talking to them all day long on a regular basis. We set them up to control things. So some of the things are automated. Sometimes they're helping us with things. Sometimes we ask them questions. And what happens in those repeated interactions is we start to form relationships with these devices. And so I'm really interested in the impact of these consumer object relationships. And one aspect of that um, relationship, which particularly fascinates me, is how these devices can actually be harmful. So how they can reduce us uh, and we can become less than we were. So an example of a project I have with uh, Tom Novak, you know, my spouse and longtime collaborator, and then another collaborator, Christian Hildebrand, who's uh, at uh, St. Ga uh, Gallen in Switzerland is we're looking at uh, what happens because you have to change your behavior in order for devices like Alexa or Google Home to understand you uh, because they're not that good at natural language processing yet. And we have to conform our behavior in order to get them to do what we want. And in the process, we can become less than we were before. So I find that really fascinating. And um, we've, you know, writ written some conceptual papers, sort of proposing some theories for how to look at consumer experience from these different perspectives. And we spent about five years developing these theories and publishing those papers. And now we are uh, squarely in the empirical phase where we're starting to test a lot of our theories uh, in these different environments. So that's an example of uh, one project, uh, another uh, project I'm really interested in is where we, where by virtue of these interactions, you um, you can anthropomorphize these devices, right? So you might think they're they're kind of like people, right, or human, or they're somehow human, and there is a lot of really interesting work, not at all in marketing that's suggesting that this, this anthropomorphism is, uh, could be negative. It could be a really bad thing that we start to anthropomorphize artificial intelligence and it could actually have some harmful consequences. And I am really uh, excited by that idea. And so we've started some projects uh, looking at, would there be other ways we could start to have a perspective of devices which might not lead to as harmful consequences. And uh, so we have some studies looking at how maybe you become too trusting when you think it's like a person, right? As opposed to if you recognize, hey, it's not really a person, right? It's an artificial intelligence, which is not like a human intelligence. And so I'm really, I'm very um, tantalized by those kinds of ideas. And so we're uh, doing some computational work with large data sets. We're looking at doing work in the lab and. Uh, we're pretty excited about you know testing some of these theories empirically. That's fascinating. Now, uh, the the very fact that human computer interaction uh, is taking a new shape uh, is very interesting because you've studied this and lots of other people have also looked at this human computer interaction. But now what you're saying is that the intelligence built into these devices it takes a totally new angle, a perspective itself because it not, not only changes the way in which humans uh, use them, but humans also start changing their behavior, right? And uh, exactly. you're concerned about humans' right. self-expressions not being totally realized, not fully realized. Is that, is that a... Is, yes, is that, is no, that that's an, good. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really good. And not only not fully real, realized, but 
even uh, more than that. So part of it could be, I can't really express myself, right? Or be right. all the things I could be interacting right. with the device as opposed to my son say, but also I might have to change my behavior and, and the uh, changing the way that I start to behave in order to interact and get achieve the outcomes could actually have deleterious consequences. And so, um, or consequences that aren't even necessarily favorable for me. I think there's a lot of opportunity for marketers to do pretty sleazy things by uh, getting- Manipulating uh, you yeah, know, absolutely. human behavior. I, yeah, is that what you're thinking about? Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, but at the same time, can a marketer use this positively in some sense? Uh, what you're saying is that we can dumb down our behavior or we can even become very different. Uh, we won't be utilizing our uh, intellectual capability fully, but can marketer use that in a way to assist consumer decision-making in a positive way? Uh, well, I think there's no question that they could. And I think that in much of our research, we try to propose that that's another option, right? That marketers could take the view that these are these devices, these objects, these smart objects, yes. they actually are entities in their own right. That's been a big theme in our research. And we take a very philosophical bent. And if we think of these as having their own experiences and being uh, entities in their own right, um, then that implies a different kind of relationship with the object where we could be partners for example, right? right? But I think what happens is marketers tend to see these more in this kind of master-servant relationship, relationship. Okay. right? Where they're more that, uh, you know, I'm the master, you're my servant. And that is a very um, limiting kind of view, right? Of what we, the object and I are, are going to be able to co-create, if you will, together. And it almost precludes this idea of uh, consumption practices that could be more interesting because it doesn't allow for the idea that, hey, if the object really gets to know me, uh, it might be able to help me be a better me, right? right. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of the, could be the promise of something like personalization, you know, a, a popular marketing buzzword. But I think it tends not to be that way. Instead, you see marketers, like a really good example of kind of negative personalization is like behavioral targeting and ad right. retargeting, right? Where you click on the shoes and the shoes follow you all over the internet, even <laughs> though you bought the God darn shoes, right? right, right. So, so it's leading to annoyance and irritation. Uh, yeah, effects, and privacy so. violations right. and kind of this creepy sense of, yeah, what God, how much do these things know about me? What are they doing with all that information? Uh, can I trust who's collecting it? So I think it raises there's a whole host of issues, I think, that really have to be unpacked as you start to think about uh, marketers kind of driving these uh, AI devices. Right. On the same note, marketers have always wondered if IoT, I can enhance efficiency because if different uh, objects, smart objects are talking to each other, I can enhance efficiency. So, for example, we can actually uh, order uh, automatically when our refrigerator uh, is out of milk or anything. And those are the kind of ease of uh, use or ease mm -hmm. of uh, living. Um, but on the other side of it, you're saying that this, uh, you know, digital assistants are almost developing a relationship with the humans. But what about the concept of uh, using the digital assistant as your uh, kind of negotiator or concierge so that you can become a smarter shopper, right? 
So right. if, if we all start using Alexa or Google Home to help us to better shop, uh, is, that, uh, is that okay from the development of the shopper or is that still might leave a lot of deleterious effect as you called it? No, I think there could be a lot, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I think it sounds great in theory, right? But then okay. I think there's a lot of opportunities for manipulation. So like yeah. one example could be, you know, if you, if you have, let's say the Alexa assistants all over your home, and then of course you're on Amazon Prime and you're shopping on Amazon all the time, you know, all this stuff is potentially connected. Right. And then it's pretty easy to say, uh, and in fact, Amazon lets you do this. If you want, you could say, I don't want to say it because she might do it, uh, you, know, reor you know, reorder the paper towels or something yeah. like that, right? And you might say, okay, that sounds great. Just like, you know, Alexa, yeah. get me more paper towels. But then the problem is just think about the ways that consumers shop, even for something that you might think is a low involvement product like paper towels. Well, how many do I need? And maybe I want to see if there's anything on special and maybe there's a different kind. And uh, maybe I want the ones with color this time and not just the plain white. And so it's taking out, I think, a lot of these aspects of choice. Right. Which in some cases, like it might reorder the towels. But what if how do I know what price it's offering me? Right. It could just totally take advantage of me and just, you know, not give yeah. me a good deal. And then I can't read any reviews. And I think there's this element of trust there that becomes really important. So I, I don't think we're there yet for these efficiencies that you're suggesting um, are kind of a holy grail of make my life easier, like from the Jetsons, right, where, you right. know, the robot just kind of takes care of everything. Right. But you're still a ways away from that. Uh... Away, long uh, ways, a, long, a very, very long way. Ways yeah. away. But if you think about it, you brought uh, a very important issue, that's privacy, which we've not been discussing that in great uh, depth mm -hmm. in many of the conversations. Uh, what do you think, uh, where are we going down in the privacy journey now? We, we know that GDPR came into existence, the California laws come into existence. <laughs> what else happens after that? Uh, I, I, that's a really good question. I think the, um, you know, we're, we're at this kind of interesting point where I don't think consumers are re recognize how much information is being collected, like about by having these devices in their home. Some, some people do like, and they already, maybe people put stickies over their cameras on their laptops, right? So there's, there's some recognition of that. Right. Uh, but I think uh, people are kind of used to this idea that, you know, they go on Facebook or these other social media platforms and I, they maybe don't care what, how much right. data has been, is being triangulated and scraped and collected by about them. But I think uh, what will and then we only see the consequences when there's these really obvious privacy breaches, right? Which pop up and a lot of talk about them and then they kind of fall away. And I think um, the same thing is starting to happen in the AI IoT space where we've had some pop, some well-known privacy breaches like people hacking nanny cams, right? And talking to the babies and, you know, that's pretty creepy. And um, there's uh, people hacking door ring cameras on the doorbells and th that sort of thing. So I think that there's an awareness that um, we, there's a potential for privacy violations, but we're in this interesting paradox where consumers are willing for the most part to trade off these concerns in exchange for what they perceive as the security and the comfort. 
of having the camera, for example, or, or having the digital assistant know all these things about your behavior. Uh, and that somehow in that calculus, uh, that's been worth it. Okay, so you mentioned the uh, security and the ability to watch over things. But in the past, uh, when marketers have deluged uh, consumers uh, and even breached some of their privacy, <clears throat> consumers have accepted it so long as they're getting a good deal. So do you think the consumers are still okay so long as they are getting a good deal? They're willing to forget about privacy issues or you think that's changing with the millennials? Well, I think, I mean, I think, as I Gen said, the good, so the good deal is couched a little bit differently because now we're into this realm of interacting with smart objects where we have right. these relationships, right? And so it's not so much this one-off, okay, I'll give you my email in exchange for a, a coupon. Right? right. So this is instead, OK, I will let you into my home and and just stream kind of vacuum up everything about my personal life in exchange for this relationship. Well, you kind of protect me. Right. Okay. So that could be through the cameras or through uh, turning my lights off and on or managing my Nest thermostat or just in general kind of. You, we have this relationship now where you manage my life or these aspects of my life, and in exchange, I kind of open the kimono, right, right. to how I live. But, but and that, I think you, at this you, point, you, yeah, people Sorry. are willing to do that. Yeah. For that, you have to have a trusting relationship with the uh, firm behind these uh, uh, bots or smart objects, right? Right. Uh, it, right. So many people uh, use uh, Amazon Echo mainly because they're kind of uh, invested with Amazon for a very long time right. and they trust them. Right. Right. Uh, but then there is, well, or they, it, I don't know how much they trust them, but they, <laughs> use, they, they, uh, they're so, let's just say they're so, uh, you know, it's, it's a cognitive lock-in problem, right? right? From, uh, just from, you know, older research from behavioral decision theory. I mean, we're just too invested at this right. point. Right. Right. And so to maybe, back out there. yeah, it's just yeah. too hard to get out and the right. benefits are worth, Right. what I'm getting. And maybe I just kind of, you know, okay, maybe there's some privacy issues, right. but maybe right. I'm not going to look too carefully. Okay. So where do you see in the next five to 10 years, maybe even longer, are these the bigger issues that marketers have to grapple with or firms in general, because AI is bringing its own set of uh, host of these uh, unant intended consequences. So I, I actually think the bigger issue, so this is another thing that we've become uh, really interested in. And um, so I'm, I haven't specifically done any research on this, but I'm sure that I will because I'm really fascinated by this and I've been reading a lot about it. I think the big, even bigger than privacy is the issue of AI bias. And so I think that uh, AI bias and, and ethics, and I think this has become even more prominent with the rise of the uh, Black Lives Matters movement, because it's, it isn't a secret that many machine learning algorithms are biased. Right. And we've known that like for years, right? With, because they're trained on biased data sets and there've been really well publicized examples of um, blacks are more likely to be, uh, you know, to be predicted to uh, reoffend. Uh, it's harder to recognize black faces, for example, because of the way they're trained on, on uh, the databases. And there are lots of these examples. Plus there's gender bias. Uh, you know, right. women, don't, you know, Amazon has had to, 
knock out, knock off its uh, resume uh, AI program because it wasn't recommending women for jobs because of the resumes it's trained on and so on. So there's tons of these examples, like there's a lot of these. And in fact, I'm so fascinated by this. I'm teaching a new course for uh, GW on AI strategy next spring, where a third of my class, it will be devoted to looking at these social problems that are being raised by That's AI, yeah. because I think that they are, um, they're interwoven with the business problems, right? Because if you're using an AI algorithm to predict something, uh, and that prediction is based on flawed training data, data yeah. then you're screwed, right? And so, and, and many of these algorithms now we know are disadvantaging people right. and they're unfair and they're biased and they're harmful to society. So I think in the future, that is going to be the really big issue. And so for example, um, facial, you know, the facial recognition right. programs, yes. which many people have been saying, we need to shut those down. They're not, they're not fair. Right. And that wasn't really getting any traction. And as soon as the Black Lives Matter uh, movement exploded, you know, this uh, this spring, we got a lot more traction on right. that. And many, many companies have said, OK, we're, we're going to shut that program down. They haven't all said that, but many have said we recognize this is this is not fair. It's discriminatory. Right. So I think the social issues um, and these implications of these smart object consumer relationships, they are going to be the one of the defining uh, issues of the next five to 10 years. I'm glad that you researching or starting to research that because, you know, bias and fairness have always been a major, major concern in AI. And we as marketers and the marketing research community have not paid enough attention. I know uh, yeah, computer science right. uh, has a uh, right. subfield that looks into it, but we still are at the uh, um, at the at the really early stages of that research. Mm -hmm. I guess we really need more research and more changes in the policies too. Right? Yeah, and not only that. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad you recognize that. But like, I'm a uh, I think we have a responsibility, right, at the at the level right. of the journals, because so I'm an AE for a number of journals, and I'm co-editing a special issue of Journal of Marketing on new technologies in marketing, and uh, so I'm a gatekeeper, right, in right. that respect. And what sort of surprises me is I'm often the only voice saying, "Well, what about the bias issues, or what about <laughs> the ethic? What about the ethics?" Right. A lot of papers are coming through the through the transom on AI algorithms, right, from the marketing perspective. And there's almost no recognition that I'm seeing uh, on the editorial side yet of, uh, hey, there could be bias here. Right. I mean, we should be addressing that. So I think that I think we have to recognize that. I'm glad you're championing the cause there. But for <laughs> businesses and entrepreneurs, what what kind of. Uh, uh, opportunities are there for them to be conscious of this bias, conscious of being fair, and what can they do uh, better or different, um, knowing fully well that there's this bias and uh, unfairness that exists? Well, I think there's two uh, ways. I mean, there, there are, there are, on the one hand, there's the 
data that the algorithm is being trained on, right? So that can be examined. Uh, and that is there, as you said, there are a number of interesting streams of research in the computer science literature and even in the NLP, the National Language Processing Literature, uh, that are looking at these issues because text itself is discriminatory, right? right the right. way language is used right. captures racism, sexism, misogyny, you name it, right? So um, I think that we, we can, on the one hand, recognize uh, that some of it is coming from the data itself, right. but then some of it is also coming from the algorithm. And so I think part of the problem is a lot of marketers aren't gonna be trained technically, but that doesn't mean that we can't educate them to raise these questions. Right. Good, when you yeah. when, when somebody's applying an algorithm like a prediction algorithm to predict sales, you know, we need to look under the hood a little bit and make right. sure we understand. Are we tar is it targeting the right people? Is it putting out the right uh, segments? And so that's on. an excellent point. You know, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's also, you know, even for the AI to get the right training data, you need to have some policies that actually uh, right. are included inclusive exactly and so right. so we also have to advise the businesses not to consciously be more inclusive so that you know there's some data after they take the decision so that these biases can be corrected but i think what happens is uh but i think this gets back then to uh issues of like you know it's not a company it's people right it's right people on. at a company like so when amazon develops an algorithm to sift through resumes right. and that algorithm turns out to be wildly gender biased right it's not, is 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 it the algorithm's fault or was the was it the yeah, white the men who programmed it without thinking maybe we should make include other kinds of Vita, you know, okay. resumes. You so know, that's, that's, a, that's another uh, good advice. So uh, this is fascinating. You've shared a lot about what's uh, more important issues for the future. Let's turn a little bit uh, towards some other aspects of you. Just what are some of the things that you do for fun? Let's say. So we're, so we're not coming back to the five words, right? <laughs> uh, well, if you have the five words or less, I'm still interested in hearing that. So. Uh, so for fun, I don't, um, fun is kind of weird because I, I feel like I'm not sure anyone is really having fun, right? It's very like you, I, I, I know I'm pretty stressed about okay, what not, right I now, but Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's, but I will say I'm doing a lot of reading and I'm okay, really enjoying I mean, so you save a lot of time not traveling, right? So, uh, so for fun, I travel, right? I, you know, like you, we travel all over the world. Yeah, we give right. talks. You know, I spend a lot of time on airplanes, especially in the summer. This is kind right, of our right. peak conference time. And you have to mourn that, right? There's this sort of grief you have to go through. But then at the same time, there's an enormous amount of time that has been freed up. And so I'm reading a lot of books. Excellent. And I'm, uh, reading what, what, books. What are some of the books that you're reading? So I'm uh, the books I'm reading, which are related to the, you know that what I hope will be my next uh, research area, are related to these issues of AI. So like oh, these different perspectives of AI, because there's tons of books and classes on how to do AI, right? right? Like how to pro how to build a machine learning model and right. how to program you know a neural network model. But and that, those are fine, and I've taken those those online courses, but. I'm much more interested in the deeper philosophical issues of what will be the impact of AI on 
us as society. humans and yeah. society. So I, I'm reading um, like Nick Bostrom's book on super intelligence. Right. I'm reading Gary Marcus's book on rebooting AI. Um, I'm reading Pedro Domingo's book on the master algorithm. And then I'm also reading these books because I'm really interested in bias on um, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. That's an, a fantastic book. And then Invisible Woman by uh, Carolyn uh, Credo Perez. She has an amazing book on uh, how we just, the kind of data that we collect and don't collect, that can influence policies in society. Uh, so I think these, the, those different kinds of books and AI superpowers, uh, as another really good book. So I'm kind of reading all, sort of juggling all of these, trying to sort of get a picture of these different ways that we can see AI because AI has been, is created by humans and it's been built on these models based on what we think is happening in the brain, right? It's sort of modeled off this idea of, you know, neural networks and neurons connecting to each other and things like that. And I think that um, there's a lot of debate in the computer science literature about what's going to lead us to AGI, artificial general intelligence. And part of that debate is that it may not be these deep learning models. They're going, we're kind of maybe going to hit a wall. We've had this renaissance in AI right. because of these neural network models. But I think there's this sense that that may not get us to this next level and we might need another perspective. Because that's also related to the way which our human brain works. It's a little bit more holistic than just these brute force deep right. learning and networks right. are. So and those deep learning networks are great. I mean, they've been really good. They're real, they are better than humans at some very specific tasks. tasks. Yeah. Right, very narrow tasks, right? Okay. But if we really want to build, you know, these robots that we are going to really interact with, I don't think neural networks are going to get us there. So from a safety, AI safety point of view, you're, you're less worried about this, uh, uh, you know, doomsday scenarios that oh, some of these people well, actually, are talking I'm about. Well, actually, I'm a pretty, I'm a big Ray Kurzweil fan. And so okay. I'm pretty convinced the singularity is around the corner. Okay. I just don't know if the corner is, you know, 30 20, years from 50, now or, you know, or what. But I totally expect, I, I believe it's inevitable that we will have a self-replicating AI, right? That okay. is the definition of the singularity and that AI will be able to self-reproduce. Uh, I don't know. But will, will, will there be a merging of human and... Uh, well, that's a separate uh, topic, like right. this transhumanism, right, right. you know, perspective and like the Elon Musk view overall. Right. We better join forces because right. we're doomed otherwise. I'm not sure that that's... I think there are definitely going to be some people who are going to embed themselves with the, right. all this tech. But uh, I think that's fringe. I don't think that's going to be most people. That's my view there, okay, except good. in some limited sense, like a new eye, new heart, new hand, you know, but, yeah. but maybe not a new brain. But I, but I think whether, we become, whether it becomes this Skynet version where they then take over and kill us right. uh, uh, is um, up to us, right? All right, okay. Well, <laughs> you, you, you have some uh, optimism there, whether we can influence that to, to a certain degree. Um, but anyway, we're coming toward the end. Uh, okay. I, I would like you to uh, think a little and then, uh, you know, if you have any messages uh, or anything to say uh, to all the people right now amid this very challenging times, what should uh, students, businesses, managers, entrepreneurs, 
what should they be doing now or differently and what can they be doing even public policy or administration officials what can they be doing on that uh, that can change the way we evolve i think right now the most immediate thing anyone can do is wear a mask okay thanks <laughs> <laughs> model you know. model that behavior wear a mask and let's let's hope we get get out of this sooner rather than later Uh, that's well said in terms of safety perspective but is there anything that from a uh, point of view of let's say learning uh, what can people be doing differently to prepare themselves for the future oh i think it's uh, well one thing i tell my students and so we're in marketing right i th- but i think it's really important the more con- quantitative training you have the better okay. you cannot have too much quantitative data science statistics computer science training i think it's it's critical it's the future the future is data driven and somebody's got to analyze that data and understand it so that that is my advice and you would suggest the same for also executives or uh managers trying to reshape their skills and retrain themselves absolutely too, right? definitely because right now there is a lot of unemployment as you know at all yes. levels unfortunately right. a lot of people uh have been affected at the lower levels but still they they may want to retrain themselves so this is a good uh opportunities for educational institutions huge right? Right. yeah and yeah. not only that even for self training i mean people who have the luxury of being able to work from home right which is not right. all of us Right. uh but if you are at home and you and you have the luxury of maybe you don't have to take care of little children so that's also not all of us like if you have these luxuries uh and you are privileged in that way then i think there are so many options opportunities yeah for uh online Retraining training yourself, yeah. which are phenomenal you know i mean they're just phenomenal courses from Stanford and MIT and you know the top uh institutions in in the in the glo- over the globe and, and that is true free. for even your institution our our Mays Business School Texas A&M we are offering a, a lot of options now for students and uh practitioners to enhance their skills enhance their learning and knowledge and yeah, that's and a great yeah right and if you're interested i mean you can get these as one offs right so you could take a a course uh right. but if you're interested many schools now have these online uh programs you can get certificates we offer them you probably offer them right. you can get a full-fledged degree uh so i think there are a uh, huge numbers of opportunities and it's not that painful right to retool yeah absolutely and thank you for that message because that resonates well with uh, a lot of us here as well but uh it's been uh super simply superb listening to you Donna share your insights because thanks Benki you know it it is uh it is very important at this time uh for a lot of us to understand where these future is going to be where the current cutting edge research is and thank you so much for sharing that uh, with us today and uh good luck with the rest of your research and hope to keep in touch with you and hope to have you back sometime great back in this great. uh show uh and uh, keep to. safe thank you keep safe and uh good to see you without the mask <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank Bye-bye. you appreciate it bye thank you.